This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to be? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. My name is Kayla Min Andrews. I'm the daughter of Catherine Min, and her novel is called The Fetishist. When novelist Catherine Min received a diagnosis of terminal cancer, she abandoned her nearly finished novel and turned to writing nonfiction. That novel, The Fetishist, is now being published thanks to Min's daughter, Kayla Min Andrews. I recently spoke with Andrews about publishing her mother's final work of fiction and about her mother's impact as a trailblazing writer. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. I'm Beth Golay, and here's my conversation with Kayla Min Andrews. So talk to me about your mom and this book and how this book came about. Yes. So mom um, was working on this book from starting, I would say, probably 2006, like right after her debut novel, Secondhand World, came out. And then she was working on it from then until 2014. Um, In 2014, she got diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I should say at that point, she had a a completed draft. She was polishing. I mean, it was it was very close. But then, you know, but she's a bit of a a perfectionist. So she was still polishing, polishing, polishing. And then, um, yeah, when she got diagnosed with terminal cancer, she says in the oncologist's office immediately, she realized, okay, my time left is limited. I want to spend it creating new art. I'm going to abandon this novel. I'm I'm done. I'm just going to focus on uh, writing personal essays because she realized she wanted to understand herself, understand where she'd been and what she'd been through kind of in a more direct way. And so, yes, from 2014 on, she wrote uh, personal essays. It was a turn for her. She had never done nonfiction before. I was working on those essays. I mean, even in the hospice room, like really urgently right up until she died in 2019. So... Uh, it's a little bit circuitous, but seeing her work on those essays, even in hospice, I was just like, felt the urgency to get those essays. I know she considered it a collection and she really wanted to get it out there. And so that's, it was actually two years after her death. Uh, my uncle set up a foundation with McDowell in her name. And then when we were doing a celebration for that, I read one of the essays and I read a chapter from The Fetishist and got all this amazing feedback from audience members. And it finally occurred to us like maybe we should try to get some of this unpublished work published. Had no idea how that would work or how that would go, but reached out to some of mom's friends, including Kathy Park Hung, who said, oh, I'll just pass the manuscript on to my agent. It was originally for the essays, um, but then talking with the agent and he brought in Sally Kim, the editor from Putnam, which was a perfect fit and amazing. And so then we were all brainstorming and talking about it. And it was like, well, there's also this novel. And then it made sense to go with the novel first since she was a fiction, she was known as a fiction writer and that was mostly what she did. And so, and it's chronological. So like after Secondhand World, she wrote this novel, The Fetishist. Um, But I'm hoping the essays will also find their way out into the world eventually. You know, in the introduction to the novel, Kathy Park Hong describes hearing your mom read an excerpt of this book at Yato, and she describes it as a reframing of Lolita from the perspective of an Asian fetishist. And she also said that the fetishist turned out that the, the novel she read, it turned out quite differently than what she had anticipated because, you know, through her book, your mom gave Asian female characters the opportunity to share their perspectives on being fetishized. 
she indicated that this is rare and long overdue. Can you talk to me about this? Yeah. Yeah. It is surprising that it's surprising that there aren't stories like this already. I mean, um, there are stories from, you know, written by white men from the perspective of white men um, desiring Asian women, but the perspective of the Asian women seems to be missing. And um, I guess, yeah, it, mom's book has multiple perspectives. And so you, you do get the white man's perspective. And she, she thought of that part as, yeah, like the, the retelling of Lolita, right. The kind of the, the delusional man um, full of kind of unsavory desires. Um, but then there's also the perspective of Kyoko and Alma um, to Asian American women and especially Alma, it's her thoughts and her, yeah, her experience of being fetishized, of being acutely aware of it and, uh, and how she's made sense of it over her life. Talk to me about your mom's writing career. Talk to me about what she has done. She started her writing career in the 80s when there was very little Asian representation. And then she was publishing short stories throughout, um, especially throughout the 90s and early 2000s. And so she published a lot of short stories at places like Plowshares or Triquarterly. Um, and a lot of them, well, maybe all of them, you know, really about the Asian American experience, but like, yeah, letting Asian women speak their truth. And um, and it feels almost ahead of its time only because it took the U.S. mainstream so long to value Asian American voices, but she's been doing it. So in some ways she was a trailblazer, right? She was um, publishing these short stories that go really deep into the Asian American experience in all the messiness and complexity of that and the individualness of that. Yeah, starting starting in the late 80s when it was rare to see that in the literary world. You know, this this book touches on death a lot. There's there's murder, suicide, attempted suicide, hospice care, classical music being played for the dying. There's a quote that captured my attention. Death is a false terminus, one moment only. It seems more significant because it's the last moment, the most recent, when really it's the smallest and least telling. So talk to me about death as a theme, if you will, because your mom wrote this before she had any indication that she she was going to get sick. Is that correct? Yes, it's really haunting, like terminal illness and death and hospice. All of that was right around the corner for her, but she didn't know it when she was writing this novel. Um, yeah, and I love the part you read. And I think there's a part either right before or right after, I think right before that, that says when a person dies, our impulse is to fix her in amber or like press her under wax paper, you know, as if they're a bug or a flower and um, flatten them out. Yeah. And so, and, and like, we don't want to flatten people out after they die. So I think about that a lot now with mom and just remembering people with all their contradictions and all their um, follies and all their complexity. Um, but yeah, it's, it's quite startling that she wrote about all this with so much insight before her diagnosis. I just thought like another obvious piece to that is grief. She's writing so much about grief and the characters are motivated by grief. And especially like you have this grieving daughter, Kyoko, who's like fiercely devoted to her mother and she's the one trying to get revenge. And it's really an interesting parallel that I'm coming to this novel as a grieving daughter in China. And I feel like this righteous cause to get, you know, my mom's work out there into the world and all of the stuff she writes about grief, you know, felt really resonant with me, even though mom wrote it before she knew I would be grieving her. So there's a lot of interesting parallels going on with that as well. One thing that the characters all have in common is their connection to music, from classical to punk. Why is the music world a good 
setting for this book? Yeah, so mom was friends with a neighbor who was a professional violinist um, back when she lived in New Hampshire, Roger Ellsworth. And I think she learned about a lot about the music world from him. She heard about this job of playing for the dying. And, you know, and it happens to also be true that the classical music world is a place with many, many Asian women are classical musicians. And it's also a metaphor for writing. I think, you know, mom was not a musician. She was not particularly connected to the music world before this. She did a lot of research. She really wanted to get those details right. But um, I think a lot of the times when she's describing music, right, it's she can kind of put in some of her own emotions and experiences of how she feels when she's writing and the release of it. And I think she writes really compellingly about just being inside the mind of, a, of an artist, right? And, and it happens to be classical music or punk rock music in the case of Kyoko, but the release and the, uh, the heightened emotion. But there's also an interesting connection to the canon, I think, because the classical music world, you know, does tend, at least historically, to be, you know, it's about um, interpreting and uplifting the works of old, dead, white men <laughs> composers. Um, not that it's only that, but that's historically a lot of it. And, and you know, Alma, the character Alma is a professional cellist at a very high level. And so if you think about, I just think it's interesting for women, people of color, any kind of marginalized group, like, how do you deal with the canon, right? How do you feel about the history of art and in the past, how it excluded marginalized voices or didn't value marginalized voices? And how do you engage with that? And do you love these old dead white composers or writers or whatever it may be? Or do you reject it? Does it make you angry? You know, how do you feel about lending your talents to, I don't know, your energy, your talents to studying them, to maybe learning from them or... Um, yeah, how do you interact with the canons? So I think the classical music world provides a rich environment for that as well. I also like how Alma adopted her own name. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about her name and where it comes from? Yes. So she became a cellist very young, and she was very aware of, of the classical music world. And she was struck by Alma Mahler, who, when she married Gustav, she was... So Alma Mahler was a composer as well, but when she married Gustav Mahler, he said, okay, you're my wife now, so you're gonna stop composing and you're just gonna support my career. So Alma chose this name for herself to remind herself, you know, she had a Korean name, but she chose this as her Western name and she chose it to remind herself not to do that. She says in the book, um, I just wanted to remind myself not to marry a genius. But, you know, to to like, I'm the artist, I'm the genius, right? Um, yeah. Both in the novel and in your afterward, we read about Socrates' last words. The unexamined life is not worth living. Now, the character in the book had to admit that he had lived a life largely without self-scrutiny. What did these words mean to your mom? Yeah, I mean, this is, um, I think this was her life's work, right, was to examine life and through fiction and then at the the final years, turning to nonfiction. This resonates for me, especially in, in her turn to nonfiction, because when she was writing those essays, which are so like direct and simple and not simple, but pared down stylistically. Um, and I remember as she was writing them, she was saying to me, you know, it just feels so good to really know yourself, to just be able to say, this is me, this is it. Um, and so I think she found a lot of peace and solace 
through exactly those words, right? That if you examine your life, you can know yourself and there's such power in that and there's such peace in that. You mentioned this a little bit earlier and, you know, in her author's note, your mom talked about this being a fairy tale of sorts and that every story has a happy ending depending on where you put the words, the end. So talk to me about this. I loved that. Yes, it's it's fascinating to me. It's fascinating to my stepdad and many of us. We've talked about how she frames it as a fairy tale initially, how she sets it up as a fairy tale. And it's like, why a fairy tale? Because the rest of the novel is, is very concrete and rooted in the real world. So it, it doesn't have that kind of abstracted parable feeling. But setting it up as a fairy tale, I wonder if that has to do also with connection to the canon. Um, there's a kind of an old literary tradition of fairy tales and it's very like Western, um, European. Yeah. And then this idea of happy endings. What does it mean to have a happy ending? I love that idea of it. Well, every story has a happy ending, depending on where you put the end. Yeah. And I think both secondhand world and the fetishist have a way of ending on a note of hope, but it's very hard earned. And yeah, there's hope, but also there's all this sadness that is never going to get resolved. So I think it plays with all of that very well. So talk to me about your role in putting this book together. Your mom finished it in her lifetime, um, but you served as one of the editors and you wrote the afterward. You know, what kind of shape was it in? And can you describe your involvement? Because as I'm asking you questions about the text, I mean, you, it's, it's like you, you own the text. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And you can talk about what comes before the te- that in the text and what comes after. So talk to me a little bit about your role and, and how you've had to assume um, you know, you're you're speaking for your mom, basically. Yeah. So as she was writing the novel, she would send me chapters, she would send me passages out of order, and I would read them. And so I had a sense of the characters and the events, but it was more like I had a sense of what Kyoko was up to. I had a sense of what Alma was up to. I had a sense of what Daniel was up to, but I hadn't seen it all put together as a novel and the way that it's actually most of it is short chapters alternating. So it's, there was a lot of work she put in into organizing it. And so I didn't see that until after she died. Um, she was such a perfectionist. She didn't, she wasn't handing out the draft at the time that she died when she switched to nonfiction. She just was like, I'm not, I'm done with that. I'm abandoning that. I'm not touching that. Yeah. And so after she died, um, I inherited her laptop. And so <laughs> it was two years after she died that I, went looking. Yeah, I knew it was there, but for some reason I wasn't ready. I didn't I didn't look for it right away. But when I did look for it and and her files are a mess and there were so many files called the fetishist and I, it took me a minute to realize I could just organize it by which one had been opened most recently. And once I figured that out, it was really striking even though I knew that she stopped as soon as she got cancer. It was striking to see that the last time the file had been opened was March 2014. I was like, oh, she literally never opened the file again. And that's so mom. She was so decisive, you know. But yeah, so then I opened it. I read it. Um, I was struck by how all the different stories and voices were woven together. I was really shocked by the final chapter because I had read that piece, but I didn't know she intended it as the final chapter. And it really blew my mind. Like that was so much of the novel felt really intuitive. It felt like I understood. I knew where it was going. I'd heard it. You know, I It was kind of in me almost. But then that final chapter, I was like, what? Like, record scratch. And I almost (laughs) felt like, can you do that? Like, what? are we sure? Are we sure about this? Um, So that was interesting. And then, 
Yeah. Okay. So there was one scene where she wrote a comment to herself within the Word document saying, eh, finish the scene later. <laughs> so it's just one scene towards the end that like clearly intended to, and she kind of, yeah, she was like, finish the scene later. Um, so I did that. Like I worked with Sally. I gave Sally the the original as it was. And then we talked about what could make it shine even more. And it was, it was mostly adding. So it was adding this one scene. And then I actually had an idea for a scene towards the end that Sally loved. And so we added it. I wrote it and, you know, and then, um, and then there were just parts like throughout the novel, adding a sentence here or a paragraph here. Um, Sally had some great ideas about this to kind of draw out arcs that were already there, but just make a little bit more clear um, the idea of fetishism. So it was kind of adding mostly small bits here and there. And then a couple of scenes towards the end was the work that I did, um, you know, in, in consultation with Sally, but it, there was a really heady time where I was just alone with mom's inherited computer, which was now my computer, you know, opening up her manuscript and just being like, oh my gosh, am I doing this? You know, and then, and then, and then making changes and, and adding my own words to her, you know, but to match, to fit into her novel and feeling like we were collaborating on a writing project, even though she was gone and definitely feeling her presence with me as I was doing it, because the only way to do it was to sort of imagine her being like, yeah that 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 yes oh are you sure about that adjective maybe not that and so it was like me figuring it out but imagining that I was figuring it out with her um, yeah it was intense what do you think she'd think about the final product I think she'd be happy with it yeah I think um I don't know yeah we'll never know but I, I definitely feel like I have a strong sense of her being excited about it and and I think she would be excited that I kind of stuck my toe in there too like she was always trying to encourage me to believe in myself and, and be more confident and, you know, in whatever form that took. And then I feel like this project forced me to do that and just to to trust my voice and to trust that I have something to contribute. And it almost feels like a weird way of mom still from beyond the grave, encouraging me to put myself out there more and 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 speak up about what matters to me. So it's it still feels like there's like a motherliness to her kind of creating this challenge for me. Yeah, if I still feel very connected to her through that. I was going to ask if you'd seen a personal change in yourself, and you kind of just answered that. Has has working on this project changed how you view your mother at all? Hmm. It's a great question. I hadn't, I don't know, changed how I viewed her. In some ways, it reinforced things I kind of already knew, but just seeing it so concretely, like I said, the fact that she had never opened the file again as soon as she got diagnosed. Like, I knew she was a decisive person, and, and she was saying that she decided in the oncologist's office, but seeing that evidence of it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it has changed. Just getting so deep into, into this novel, you know, obviously I read Secondhand World, but I wasn't so deeply in it, and... Um, yeah, because the fetishist is so funny and that humor was very much a part of our dynamic and we were always joking around with each other, kind of dry humor. Sometimes we would do British accents kind of randomly just because, I don't know, we're goofy. And I felt a lot of that humor in the novel, but I think it took a couple readings for me to really feel the pain of it too. And obviously I knew my mother had pain, but just to, to really feel the pain of some of the, you know, being fetishized or being being so acutely aware of how you're being seen by people who don't fully value your individuality. 
I think it took me a while to really absorb that pain. And I think there was part of me as an Asian woman of trying to distance myself from or be like, oh, that doesn't really apply to me or I'm, I'm a younger generation or I have both, I'm half white or, you know, just like, oh, it doesn't apply to me. And then eventually through reading the book so many times and working on it and then maybe just eventually really fully absorbing like, no, this does apply to me, too. And it, it hurts. Is there anything you want readers to know about your mom? Gosh, <laughs> I think it'll come through in the book, but she was funny as hell. Uh, She's very kind of a larger than life persona. And, you know, I was lucky to be very close to her, but I also witnessed like so many of her friends, like so many people were really moved by her. And like, even in hospice, all the hospice nurses kind of became her best friends and they would like chat and talk about their divorces or, you know, romantic lives or just like um, she had a way of kind of going deep with people and getting kind of um, just connecting. And it was really beautiful to see. Um, yeah. I understand there's a book tour. Can you talk to me about that? I'm excited because my brother and I, so I have a younger brother, just the two of us, um, my brother and I will be going on tour around the country to share this book. And I think that'll be really special for him and I to experience that together and to meet people who like the book or, or meet like friends of moms around the country and and share the book with more people. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. Well, your mom's book is The Fetishist by Catherine Min. Kayla Min Andrews, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Beth. This was really a pleasure for me. That was Kayla Min Andrews, daughter of Catherine Min, whose novel The Fetishist was published by G.P. Putnam Sons. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Goulet.